When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to episode 217 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. What's happening, Dan? Just recovering after a busy, busy weekend last weekend in Austin for ATX Television Festival. Um, turns out, turns out I I require more recovery than I used to back in my youth. Ain't that just the way? But anyway, it was a fun weekend in Austin. Uh, the festival organizers and whatnot, as always, put together a great event. And while certainly there was some strangeness related to the looming specter of the strike, well, maybe not looming, just the existing specter of the strike, I would say that it was a generally joyful festival of television love as it's supposed to be. Yeah, I miss being there. That's a, always one of the great events on the TV calendar every year. And if you haven't been, highly recommend it if you're a diehard fan of the industry because uh, your access to creatives and talent is unparalleled. I would mention that at least a half dozen people, probably more, mentioned having been in the audience for our only previous TV's Top 5 live event and said that they hoped that we would do one in the future. And I second that hope. I hope that we will also return and do another live TV's Top 5 at ATX TV Festival in the future. Thirded, my friend. In other news, we're coming up on week six of the writer's strike. SAG has voted to overwhelmingly approve a strike should it resort to that in negotiations with the AMPTP breakdown. And the DGA has reached a tentative deal of their own. So lots to get to this week. But before we do, we're going to start off with headlines. Number one. Leading off, Vanessa Bayer comedy series, I Love That For You, has been canceled after a single season at Showtime, likely completing the content slate review by Chris McCarthy who added the cabler to his purview last year and has dropped or canceled a number of scripted series in favor of spinoffs of Billions and Dexter. Dan, this is uh, kind of a bummer because it had been in limbo. The show had been in limbo for a year. Yeah, and and that's the kind of thing that, that I'd love to get more clarity on from you, how that ends up sitting around for as long as it did, because that was, that was one which aired a long time ago and has just kind of been sitting there. And I mean, it probably extended options <laughs> for the cast, they were looking at it, probably weighing the, the finance. I, I had heard that all of the scripts for a, a second season were already done. And ultimately, it probably, like everything else, came down to money and a budget issue. 
Well, I hope the writers who wrote the second season were appropriately compensated for that labor. Um, but I mean, it'll be shopped and we'll see if it, it winds up anywhere. But uh, yeah, not, not a lot of deals being done right now in the TV community. Definitely not. No, just it, it is still odd, though, to see a show be in limbo for that long. And I think probably kind of logics tended to dictate that it wasn't going to get renewed. I think that if it had been you know nominated for awards or something, maybe that would have made a big difference. But yeah, little little perplexed on that one. Yeah, but. it doesn't necessarily fit into the programming buckets Chris McCarthy has outlined for Showtime, or is it called Showtime with Paramount Plus? Or I don't. Paramount know Plus with Showtime. Anything or is called sh- anymore at all? Paramount Plus minus. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. The CW continues to push into sports and has picked up Inside the NFL, the weekly highlight and interview show that spent its past two seasons streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus or Paramount Plus with Showtime. No, probably not. Uh, <laughs> The Nexstar-controlled CW is the fourth home for the series, which spent 31 years on HBO, which is honestly, I think, where I still thought it was, before moving to Showtime in uh, in 2008. And speaking of the CW, the network's coverage of Live Golf will continue on as scheduled as the startup league is being merged back into the PGA Tour in strange ways that are causing much I don't know, somewhere between head scratching and garment rending within the golf world. Um, yeah, weird, weird, weird story. Um, whole year of conflict between Live Golf and the PGA Tour comes down to PGA Tour ultimately taking money. So very from the Saudis, not a not a right? not a great look for the PGA Tour, but. I suppose some people will be happy to have all of their favorite golfers back under one roof after having watched all of their favorite golfers tear each other to shreds in the press for a year. Elsewhere, ABC is developing a new take on Extreme Makeover Home Edition with the founders of the Home Edit set to host the new incarnation of the former unscripted series that aired for nine seasons on the network. So we're going to play a game here at TV's Top 5, and I hope you'll play along with us. So let's monitor this this show and see when ABC officially hits the panic button that it needs more content to fill its schedule during the writer's strike. And of course, we sh- you know we should know we did have the head of ABC's programming on a couple episodes ago. And he talked all about the network's decision to go largely all unscripted for the fall, with the exception of repeats of Abbott Elementary. And this is obviously all because of the writer's strike. So does ABC have enough content in the pipeline, as he suggested? Or is this extreme makeover project that's in development right now kind of the backup going, well, if this goes a long time and really starts to affect our January roster, we might need to go stuff into the summer, et cetera. So... We're going to use this as a guinea pig and see when when they when ABC hits the panic button. Extreme Makeover Home Edition is one of those titles where if you had asked me if it was still a show that was airing in some capacity on ABC or Freeform or somewhere at this moment, I think I probably would have said eh, 50-50 it is. Uh, similarly, I could not tell you with any real certainty if wife swap or celebrity wife swap have aired in the past couple of years uh let's see i couldn't tell you if the nanny or super nanny have aired in the past couple of years i am certain that there has not been a new installment of the swan in several years but you know honestly there's so much what's old is new on television that honestly even if it weren't just strike insurance i would think sure why not it's a recognizable title and once we once we el- eliminated the original 
thing that the extreme makeover shows were making over, which is to say humans, uh, and just made it into a home edition. Eh, whatever. It's <laughs> it's harmless, painless entertainment. Um Anyway, uh, on on the more painful side, for people who are fans of things, HBO has canceled Perry Mason after a two-season run that included uh, two sets of showrunners on the series, which was executive produced by Robert Downey Jr. and starred Matthew Reese. Uh, lots of unhappiness, at least on my Twitter feed, but could totally be one of those situations in which my Twitter feed is not necessarily representative of anything. I, I don't know. It's... Uh, it's a show that struggled to find its own footprint and to convince people who were tentative about the brand to begin with that they wanted to watch it, which doesn't mean that the people who tuned in didn't like it. Uh, the second season felt much more on brand than the first, which felt basically like a 10 episode premise pilot. Uh, yeah, just just too bad. It was definitely always a tremendously well-produced show and the cast was quite excellent and yeah, but also not necessarily a show that was so good that I'm going to get outraged and angry about it. Just minorly disappointed on the behalf of its fans. And in news from late last week, Padma Lakshmi is leaving Top Chef after 19 seasons on the Bravo franchise. Dan, this is one of your favorite shows. So I imagine you have, as the kids say, the feelings. I have the the sadness because the show will not be the same without her. She is very, very, very crucial to the energy of the show. She had done it basically since the second season. Uh, first season was was not her. But uh, yeah, really, truly one of the one of the very, very good two possibly great hosting jobs on television that she did on that show. And and her ability to set the tone for the show was very, very crucial to its success, which has been ongoing and varied. Uh, I think probably she is more integral than any of the other pieces. You know, I like Tom Colicchio an awful lot. I, I think the show probably could exist without him. I feel as if there have been multiple seasons without Gail Simmons of Food and Wine magazine. I like her very much when she's on it, but when she's not, I don't miss her. It will be tough, however, to find the exact person capable of replacing her. Uh, at least one person in response to my disappointment or sadness on, on Twitter said that Kristen Kitsch, who uh, was on the show multiple seasons and has her own show on Nat Geo slash Disney Plus, slash et cetera, et cetera, that she would be a potentially good replacement. And I think that's actually completely true. I think if, if Kristen Kitsch wanted to do it, she would be a great candidate. I happen to think her... Her show is a really, really good show, and so I'd love to see her get to do more of that. And look, if Padma wanted to do other things, wants to do other things, if she wants to concentrate on on Taste the Nation on Hulu, which I think is a great show and uh, and was even better in its second season than it was in its very good first season, she's obviously entitled to do that. Hosting any show for this length of time is, is you know, it's a lot. Uh, but But on the other hand, her tone setting on that show has been a major portion of its success in both better and worse seasons. And so she will be missed. The show is ending this most recent season this week. And yeah, I will be, I will be sad to see her go, but she's entitled to do whatever she wants. Number two. Up second this week, the Chris Licht era at CNN is officially over. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zasloff informed staff June 7th that Lick, the former exec producer of Stephen Colbert's The Late Show, was out after an eventful 13-month run. 
Joining us to discuss the move and what's next for CNN is THR's media and business reporter and the hardest working man in showbiz, Alex Weprin. Alex, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. So getting started, the surprise here from my vantage point anyway is not so much that he's out, but that he's out so soon. What do you think was the final nail in the coffin here? Yeah, I mean, there's really no question that that 15,000 word story in the Atlantic was the thing that ultimately did him in. There were certainly um, other things that led up to that. The, you know, the kind of disastrous Donald Trump town hall that, you know, Christiane Amanpour called out in her commencement address to Columbia University. Um, the fact that the morning show that he created, which was supposed to be his first like tentpole program, imploded. And when he fired Don Lemon after just moving him from prime time to the mornings, the fact that the ratings were either static or in decline, and uh, the fact that it seems like most of the high-profile anchors say they didn't really have a relationship with him. They didn't know him, and, and as a result, you know, they, they didn't know if they could trust him. So, you know, I, I suspect this was probably going to happen eventually. And in fact, I would have bet in, you know, in the next couple of months, maybe six months. Um, but uh, yeah, the Atlantic story certainly hastened the pace of uh, of, of everything. I mean, I love that list of the fact that and the fact that and the fact that there were plenty and plenty of reasons why this was not apparently a successful tenure. Why do you think was it simply the volume of the Atlantic story? Like everyone only seems to be discussing that story, not so much in terms of individual things within it, but the it was 15,000 words of one thing after another. <laughs> and the access that the Atlantic was granted was insane. Like who signs off on that? Yeah, I mean, the fact that he was there like at 6 a.m. with his, you know, with his trainer working out. Uh, I do think that the quote, <laughs> you, I'll, I'll encourage people to read the article, but the quote uh, of him talking about his predecessor, Jeff Zucker, with his trainer is the one that's going to resonate for a long time. But, uh, you know, uh, you're right. There wasn't like a singular headline from that story. It was rather uh, a lot of rope. And, uh, and Chris used every inch of it to, you know, to seemingly seal his fate. Um, uh, you know, it, it was just everything that, you know, it kind of, I think here's the thing when Tim Alberta, who's the reporter at the Atlantic who wrote the story, when he started following Licht last year, I think everyone was kind of hoping it'd be a positive story at the time. He, he hadn't really done any major moves yet. And so, you know, he was going to make all these changes. He was going to launch this morning show. He was going to, you know, change these specials in prime time. And what happened was. Even as Alberta followed him, everything kind of flopped. And the more time he spent with Chris, the more apparent it became that he didn't really have a relationship with a lot of the people that worked for him. And, you know, it, it you know, what ended up, what I think Chris hoped would be a very positive story about himself ended up being something that just really did him in. Like, to my perspective, it simultaneously feels like there are two very different but obviously connected things at play here one being that chris lick might have been very much the wrong person for this job he seems not to have had really the background for it he obviously came from colbert and all of that but also at the same time he kind of arrived at a house on fire and then just the water that he attempted to throw on it didn't work but i can't imagine that anyone would have been able to reverse that how do you look at the balance of those two things the wrong man for the wrong job and the job that was imploding anyway aspect of this yeah you're absolutely correct like this well you know cnn was not like swimming along in perfect shape and you know it was already kind of in trouble it had you know been trying to find a voice for itself for you know pretty much since donald trump left office since jeff zucker you know left um and uh, so it needed a turnaround. 
you know, David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, he apparently picked Chris without, you know, look, even talking to any other people. He just knew it was going to be Chris. And Chris, you know, has had success as a producer for, for Morning Joe on MSNBC. CBS This Morning, you know, even though that never became a hit show, it did show that you could have a serious news program in the morning. Um, and uh, and again, at Colbert, where he is partly credited with kind of helping turn that show around at a time when it, it was having personnel issues. Um, but, you know, uh, the truth is he had never been an executive, you know, in that level, in that capacity before. And, you know, uh, dealing with things like budgets and human resources and illegal and, you know, all of these things that kind of take up a lot of your time if you're the boss um, meant that he really wasn't doing much in the way of programming. And that was supposed to be his bread and butter programming and anchor relationships. Gail King and Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski all had great things to say about him. But the CNN anchors barely knew him. So, you know, that, that you know, it, it was a weird situation where he was taking over a network that was in trouble um, and he wasn't leaning into what his supposed strengths were when he got there. So what's next for CNN in the interim? So for now, they've got interim leadership. It's uh, it's Amy Antelis, who's the, the kind of the head of talent relations, who's kind of the CNN veteran. David Levy is the COO. He's a, you know, a, a David Zaslav lieutenant. He's going to run the commercial and business side of things. Uh, Virginia Mosley is kind of the head of the newsroom. Um, uh, and there's uh, the head of programming, uh, 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 whose name I'm forgetting off the top of my head, <laughs> is uh, sticking around as well to go and oversee the daily programming. Uh, so, you know, that's purely an interim play. Uh, they are going to look for someone. But the problem is the 2024 election's coming up. Like, they have to get on top of that. Um, and so I guess it's going to be up to this interim leadership to 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 do that um, and, and figure out how they're going to plan for and cover 2024. Uh, and it's also not clear when and if they hire a replacement for Chris. Is that person going to have the same job Chris had or is it going to be a, a diminished role where they just oversee programming and David Levy oversees the entire business side of the operation. I think that's likely. Yeah, that's kind of the structure that uh, NBC Universal has done in, in terms of, you know, looking at they have Francis Berwick overseeing all the business side of it all. And then Susan Rovner overseeing all the creatives, for example. Yeah, although I'll note that on the news side, uh, Cesar Conde at, at NBC News Group for, does oversee every all of that himself. Um, and he is, in fact, not a journalist. His his uh, his his background is as an executive. Do we have a sense of, I guess we do have a sense of kind of what it was that Licht thought his philosophy was going to be, that it was sort of the idea of returning CNN to this idea of balanced neutrality or or whatever. I mean, it's, it's some mumbo jumbo, but I, I've, I've seen a lot of the word neutrality around. Do we have a sense of what it is that David Zaslav thinks would be an alternative that would make him happy? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, Zaslav has spoken quite a bit about what his vision for CNN is, and a lot of it seems to be about making sure there are Republicans that appear on CNN, because <laughs> um, they, you know, and it's it's true that you know during a lot of the the Zucker years, certainly towards the tail end, a lot of Republicans just wouldn't even bother going on CNN. But it's not clear, you know, what is a neutral kind of return to you know. New, this kind of central, you know, this center position, like it's a kind of vague and amorphous. The only thing he's really said is, you know, he wants both sides represented on TV, which, you know, fine. But like, you know, what exactly does that mean in terms of calling out BS? What does it mean in terms of, you know, deciding your news coverage? Like, you know, not everything's going to be perfectly 50-50. And it's been quite vague and you know, even licked uh, kind of at a hard time, 
you know, figuring out what exactly that meant. Um, and that's one of the issues that I heard from from CNNers. They didn't entirely understand what the mission was. You know, they weren't opposed to like interviewing Donald Trump or interviewing Republicans. It's just, you know, how do you do that? What's the format? Um, and how do you kind of push back against BS? Uh, and so that's that's kind of, you know, one of the problems that they've had. And it's not clear that it's going to end here because David Zaslav still seems to have that vision for CNN. So are there any candidates that you can think of that would be right for this job? I mean, obviously, this is these are this is a big job that that doesn't exactly have a great uh, success rate attached to it, at least not right now. Yeah, I mean, look, this is like, you know, the, the new version of like being the president of a broadcast network, you know, it's a great job for a couple of years, then you're fired. Um, you know, internally, uh, Amy Antelis is seen as the favorite. She is the person with the great relationships with anchors and talent. And I think at a news network, that's probably the most important thing to have. You know, you need, you, you know, your anchors need to trust the leadership. They need to have someone they can talk to, correspondence as well. Um, externally, there aren't a lot of great candidates. Um, you know, as I wrote in a piece the other day, Noah Oppenheim recently left NBC News, but of course he was quite controversial at NBC. He's currently writing um, fiction, uh, you know, for, for NBC and Netflix. He's got that zero day show. Um, and, and which we'll talk about later. Uh, yep. Uh, and, you know, so the, the, there, uh, someone, uh, someone mentioned uh, the former, he was the former president of Fox News and CBS News, David Rhodes. Um, he's someone that his name came up. He currently works for Comcast and at Sky in the UK. But like, you know, the, there aren't any obvious candidates. And the truth is, it's going to be a very high profile, difficult job. Uh, and I think a lot of people just aren't going to be interested in it. Like, that's my, that's my question after all this is, is this actually a good job at the moment? Like, I, I can sort of accept the idea that whatever it was, and I, you know, said again, it was a house on fire when Chris Lick came in. You could view it if you wanted to as the house has been burnt down. Now it's a chance to do new construction. But is is this even a good plot of land at this point? My, what I would say is like if you were given the opportunity to reimagine CNN for the digital age, maybe it could be a good job, you know. Uh, but the truth is, I think Warner Brothers Discovery kind of views CNN as kind of their toy to play with in the digital space. They'll figure out some way to work it into Max at some point. And so, you know, if, if all you really get if you join CNN is the linear television network and CNN.com, it's not nothing, but. You know, it, it's not going to it's not a growth business. It's not something that you could invest in and grow something new necessarily. Um, and so I, I, the result is that I think it's less appealing. Maybe they change and pivot and say, hey, we're going to hire someone that's going to, you know, have the opportunity to kind of figure out the strategy for bringing CNN to the, into the future. But uh, that seems unlikely to me. I feel like a, a digital version of CNN, a CNN plus, if you will, <laughs> uh, seems like just a really great idea. And I don't know why they don't do that. Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, look, I, I, I do I understand the, the, the I actually I, I get both sides of that because like, you know, CNN plus was a big bet on figuring out what the future should be. The criticisms, which were fair, was that like, you know, it was kind of a low rent version of CNN. And like, why would people pay for something that's like not CNN plus, but it's like CNN minus, you know, you're getting, it's like not quite as good as the real CNN, but you have to pay for it. Um, so I understand that too. And, you know, the background at the time was that, you know, CNN executives were saying, oh, we could always, at some point in the future, we'll just put the regular CNN on CNN plus. And people were, well, I was like, well, then why would I pay for what's on CNN plus? Like, you know, what's the point? Um, 
so you know uh, that's that's true but like it, it's a joke but like you know the, the, someone needs to be thinking about what's next and uh it's not clear that whoever takes over is going to get that opportunity excellent that sounds like a good and very speculative and uncertain place to end this conversation thanks so much for breaking down the week's news with us as always alex all right my pleasure Thanks, Alex. And you can follow all of Alex's reporting on THR.com and follow him on Twitter at Alex Weprin. Thanks again, Alex. Number three. For our next two segments, we're talking about, oh yeah, labor unrest. Again, more. On the other hand, it's expanding. But of course, we knew it was going to be. So our next two segments, we're talking a little bit about where things are and where things are going. Up first, the Directors Guild has reached a tentative agreement with the studios and streamers. The union's 19,000 members now have until June 23rd to approve or reject the deal, which includes some protections against AI and what the DGA is calling a historic 13% cumulative wage increase over the next three years. Leslie, where do we want to start with the agreement that the DGA has reached and the reaction, at least that we've been able to see thus far, to that agreement? Yeah, well, the, they, the DGA came to a deal. This was late Saturday night into Sunday morning after negotiating all, um, for the better part of Saturday and the DGA's current contract expires June 30th, along with SAGs. And the timing of this deal is really interesting because SAG was in the middle of asking its members to vote to approve a strike authorization, which mean, which would allow the negotiating committee that represents the actors union the ability to call a strike if negotiations, which are now underway and started this week on Wednesday, with the AMPTP, the, the group that represents the studios and the streamers. So the DGA came to a deal before the results of the SAG vote, which were overwhelmingly positive. So 98% of that union, and we'll get to that next. Shh, you're spoiling to, our next segment, Leslie. Spoiler. <laughs> with 98% of SAG, of, of the SAG after union voted to approve of a strike. And the DGA, in the middle of all of that, accepted a deal and has which has already been ratified by the board. And now, it, as you said, Dan, it is out to members to to vote whether to approve uh, or reject the deal and send the, the DGA's negotiating committee back to the table. So specific details were sent out to members late Wednesday. Those include a new formula for foreign streaming residuals that are based on a platform subscriber total, gains in global residuals, and, and additional pay days for post-production work but there is specific language in this document, and it is massive. So I'll let our readers who are interested in getting into the weeds find that document. It's over on THR.com. Our, our terrific labor reporter, Katie Kilkenny, wrote it. Um, you can access the full document on our website or on the DGA's website. But the language is already kind of being picked apart on socials, as you can imagine. So one of the things that we that we've seen is for example Stephen Estenite the writer and director whose credits include Spartacus and and Daredevil and who is a, me a member of both guilds is urging his fellow DGA members to vote no on the deal he wrote uh quote this isn't the time to accept table scraps and call them historic he argued that the wage increases don't keep up with the expected average rate of inflation in the US among other issues 
Other members, meanwhile, are claiming that there are gaping loopholes in streaming residual increases, plus the DGA um, gained zero insight into streaming platform viewership, and they want the, the Directors Guild to harness the leverage of the moment to maximize gains instead of settling for a deal. So the other side, meanwhile, DGA President Leslie Linka-Glatter has said the deal, quote, recognizes the future of our industry is global and respects the unique and essential role of directors and their teams as we move into that future. And speaking of Gladder, her Netflix show, Zero Day, starring Robert De Niro, was shut down this week after members of the WGA picketed the filming location in New York. Members of, of IATSE and others refused to cross the picket line and production was suspended until after the labor strife is concluded. But the optics of the president of the DGA continuing work while also accepting a deal with the studios and the streamers It's not going over well, to say the least. Several writers that I spoke with on the picket line this week mentioned feeling surprised but not completely shocked that the DGA would reach a deal with the AMPTP after less than a month of negotiations. And after, more importantly, guild leaders stood side by side with the WGA and other unions at the WGA's first rally following its May 2nd decision to go out on strike. And that was a a pretty legendary meeting because you had everyone from the Teamsters to the DGA to SAG after it everything in between, stand up on stage and tell members that they are with the WGA, that they stand by and support the WGA. So now here you have, after less than a month of negotiations, the DGA taking a deal. So the sentiment, at least from what I've hearing so far, is not exactly going in the DGA's direction. But again, the specific details and the language of the DGA's proposed deal has been out for less than 24 hours as re- we record this. A lot of folks are are declining to comment until after the DGA's membership weighs in. So you've got, like Dan said, that's, that's coming uh, by the end of the day, June 23rd. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with that. So the timing, again, is interesting. And I'm going to take us straight into our, our next segment. Number four. SAG-AFTRA, that's the union that represents actors, they overwhelmingly voted to approve of a strike should those talks with the AMPTP break down during negotiations, which are now, as we record this, in the early days. So the Guild's negotiating committee has three weeks. That's it. Three weeks to reach a deal with the studios and streamers before its contract, like the DGA's, expires on June 30th. So, and SAG-AFTRA is... The biggest branch, it's Hollywood's largest union with 160,000 members, and 98% of them voted to authorize the negotiating committee to call a strike if needed. So what you're seeing here is you've got SAG, which is a little bit more closely aligned with the WGA in terms of specific deal points. Yes, AI is on the table for everyone, but it more directly impacts writers and actors than it does directors. So... One of the the other things that they're looking for, in addition to protections from AI, is changing the rules around self-tape auditions alongside wage increases and streaming residuals that also account for for global viewership. So this is a massive moment in in the industry. While we've talked on the show about a possible three-union strike, what happens with the DGA's vote? What happens with SAG's three weeks three-week window to negotiate a deal that is far more in line with the WGA. And we obviously saw what happened with those negotiations. So a lot of the sentiment right now is, does it behoove SAG 
to rush negotiations in the next three weeks? Or is it fair to expect that actors will join writers out on strike? Should that happen? First of all, we should say that an actor strike would immediately halt any remaining U.S. productions that have been able to continue filming during the writer strike. And it would come two years after COVID forced a similar work stoppage from which the industry is still recovering. So the actors demands, like I said, they ha- do have the similar overlap w- with the WGA, although many of the core demands from the writers are specific to that, pr- to that profession, i.e. span and protections of writers rooms. So, We've already seen actors out on the picket lines in support of their fellow, uh, in support of their, their writers. Mark Ruffalo, Jason Sudeikis, many others have often been pounding the, the pavement. But the last time the actors went out on strike against the major film and TV studios was more than four decades ago. So this is truly a landmark moment. And it's something that we're all, that the entire industry is basically waiting and holding its breath. Will the DGA approve or reject of its tenant a deal with the, the streamers and the studios. What happens with the SAG negotiations? This is a pivotal moment in our industry, to say the least. And there's no way necessarily for us to, we can read the tea leaves, but we can only read the tea leaves so far. Like, I think that that's been the interesting thing. If, you know, we talk over and over again about social media bubbles and all of this. And, and if one were to, base one's sense of how the DGA deal is being received based on my Twitter feed, it would be largely negative. But I don't have any way of knowing how representative that is. Like, I feel like most of the people who who I follow on Twitter and whose responses to things I follow are simultaneously members of, of both the writer's guild and the director's guild. And I think people who have those two loyalties have a different perspective on what accepting a deal means for the directors. I think if you, if you have the writer's guild hat as well, I think you would feel like it was not necessarily such a good deal. I think you would think that it was a deal that did not necessarily lend itself profitably to the demands of the Writers Guild. And so it doesn't necessarily feel like a deal that one would be able to work off of. I think if you were exclusively a director, maybe it would seem a good deal more appealing. I I think in those cases, you wouldn't be looking at it as a what what did the DGA get that the Writers Guild could then build off of? What did the DGA get that SAG could then build off of, etc.? And so I do wonder what the difference and we're never I don't know that we're ever going to find this out because I don't know when we get vote totals, you know, if anyone's going to say, okay, but hyphen it's voted at this percentage and whatever, whereas exclusively DGA members voted this way. But definitely it feels to me as if the people who have two hats feel as if this deal serves ultimately neither of their hats, whereas the people with only one hat feels as feel as if, okay, there is progress here. They can look at they can look at the uh, the raise in, in money and compensation and go, OK, 5 percent now, 13 percent within three years, et cetera. Does that account for uh, inflation and all of that? Well, you know, Stephen tonight does not think so. And other people. Who, yeah, here's yeah. here's one that that just came in not too long ago. This is from Warren Light, former TV's top five guest who joined us recently to talk all about the WGA East strategy of picketing filming locations. Quote, as a dual WGA DGA member, I'm voting no on the deal. I think there's more to be had, especially on domestic streaming. And I don't think the numbers are, quote, historic given inflation. 
And I think that, and I think that is going to be a common perspective. I think that people who, who know that, (laughs) that one deal affects others and know that the deal that appears to be on the table for the DGA is not ultimately going to be beneficial for the WG on most of the things that they seem to want. I think they have genuine and apparently tangible concerns. Whereas the people who are only directors again, can just point to and, and look, you can go and you can find lots of threads from various different directors who want to point out all of the advances that are being made. And I don't think there's any question that there are advances being made in, in this deal. Obviously, of course there are, but are there enough and what is the value of solidarity and what is the value of stepping away from that solidarity is kind of where everyone is going to have to decide for themselves. Because it's not as if if the DJA takes this deal that suddenly there is going to be a deal that's going to make the writers and the actors happy. So you're going to have a bunch of directors who are going to have a deal, but no actual productions that they're capable of making. So great if the directors approve this deal, if the actors and writers are on strike <laughs> what has anyone gained? Right. It's and if they do approve that and then you see what SAG and WGA get, is there going to be, you know, re- immediate regret? So, yeah. So the, the question of sort of whether the sort of looking at the reactions, you know, to use the words that Stephen tonight used the table scraps, you know, is, is this, is, is this really table scraps? Is it maybe a full meal, but it's not as nourishing as it should be. Is it, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have the answer for that. And and it's going to be very interesting to see what the vote looks like and what the vote looks like along lines that we'll never see. We will, we will not see those answers on whether Warren Light and Stephen tonight speak for the hyphenates or whether because they're more passionately, out with the WGA if they are speaking just as more as WGA members who see this as being a sign of insufficient solidarity coming after all of the previous professions of solidarity. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot, (laughs) there's a lot happening here and we don't know where it's going to end up with anyone. Yeah. It's as we like to say, a rapidly developing story. So lots going on here and we'll continue to monitor it as we always do. And hopefully bring you some voices next time and, and back and return to the strike zone. Not, not a lot of people looking to do on the record press this week for some reason, even on the picket lines. So yeah, it's very, very interesting uh, what, what's happening and how people are, are choosing to respond to this. A lot of people are saying that they need more time with the document um, because obviously it's very in depth. And and some people really just declining to comment because they don't want to, you know, put put their opinions out there while other members are are deciding for themselves. So we'll be interesting to see if that continues to be the narrative or if people kind of start to come out more publicly beyond Twitter about their thoughts on this deal. So stay tuned as always. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Peacock's Based on a True Story, The Crowded Room over at Apple, the final seasons of Never Have I Ever and Human Resources on Netflix, plus Arnold, which is a documentary about Arnold Schwarzenegger on a platform that I'm not entirely sure of. And Dan, since there were no screeners for it, I think you're going to weigh in on HBO's The Idol. I, I am indeed. And the platform that you've that you've probably heard of that's airing Arnold is uh, Netflix. 
Yeah, well, oh. I should have. That was my guess, but I didn't want to. <laughs> timed wholly logically to uh, the release of FUBAR on Netflix, almost as if a puff piece documentary was in some way associated with the with the deal, though hard to know which part was wagging the dog or the tail or whatever. Also, um, wag the dog is a great, great journalism movie. It, wag the dog is, is a very, very, very fun movie. I have not watched it basically since it premiered, but it seemed prescient at the time, and I bet you it's even more prescient. Um, yes, so definitely going to address the idol. We're, we're in a sort of weird moment uh, coming out of the end of May kind of Emmy contender avalanche and then shifting into... It's not like necessarily these are shows getting dumped, but on the other hand, these are definitely all shows that if they were more logically and inherently Emmy contenders, probably someone would have attempted to premiere them last week or the week before because Emmy voters don't have a long attention span. And these are all shows that are going to be long shots for any Emmy memory come a year from now. Also, I would say in the case of all three of them that there's really no Emmy consideration concerns whatsoever, uh, particularly in the case of The Idol. But so that also has meant that you've had you had The Idol, which premiered at Cannes, and critics were allowed to see the first two episodes if they happened to be on the ground in Cannes. But there were no screeners made available for critics who weren't in Cannes. Uh, but that's just one of those things. So while our uh, uh, colleague Lovia was able to see and review multiple episodes... I've only seen the one episode. And then at the same time, and again, these are all just sort of impediments on my slash our abilities to do our job, both The Crowded Room and Based on a True Story had very peculiar do-not-reveal lists from their respective services, where in both of the cases of those two shows, the basic premise of the show was deemed something that was not supposed to be revealed, uh, which is peculiar um, and annoying. But what can you do? Uh, so, yeah, let's talk quickly about The Idol. Leslie, did you check out The Idol on Sunday night? No. <laughs> I, can, I keep meaning to watch it, but uh, yeah, there's there's been baseball on and there's a couple of things going on in Hollywood so yeah you you really don't need to um what what ultimately is most frustrating about it is that it's just really really dull it kind of goes it goes in the same bucket to some degree as Citadel on Amazon where all of the discussion of reshoots and budget and reconceptions and wild ambition and whatever. Then when people settled in and watched the actual show, the large majority of the responses that I've seen and heard is, eh? you know, as in the, what, what was all the buzz about? What was all the whatever about? Somewhat similarly on The Idol, for all of the discussion of how risque and wild and whatever it is, it's really mostly just boring. It's it's so dull and tedious. And yes, there's a lot of, of prurient nonsense. But the idea that this was the revised version of the show that was made 
after they got rid of Amy Simons, after they got rid of much of the cast, after Sam Levinson basically took over the show. Uh, honestly, the idea of where anyone at HBO thought the money was going and why anyone thought it was a good idea. I understand that The weekend is a star and brings with him a certain amount of buzz and attention, but I would love to hear an HBO executive justify the cost of this show on an artistic level because it's it's just bad. There's there's nothing to it that I would be able to to latch on to. It's a, as a positive its version of celebrity culture and entertainment culture and sort of industry satire is is very bland and not especially funny and the the writing on the show is is consistently dismal and superficial and and really really glib you know characters joking about how the character played by the weekend is is yeah he looks rapey and someone's like haha that's what i like about him and it's it's just it's dismal writing uh, the the directing it has a sort of flashy but hollow visual style um and more hollow than euphoria which is also a show that i've never really warmed to in the way that some people do but the thing that Euphoria has always had going for it is its top to bottom cast has always been excellent. And so a lot of the a lot of the humorous aspects of the show play because the cast makes them play. And then a lot of the dramatic elements of the show play because Zendaya is very, very effective and, and much of the cast is very, very effective. There really is nothing comparable here that's that's keeping anything held together um the the weekend is a complete and total blank slate of an actor he's he's not in any way charismatic as a performer in this context lily rose depp playing a pop singer named jocelyn because that's a valid name for a pop singer um who's sort of a blend of britney spears and miley cyrus i guess she's she's not bad and whatever the show is asking her to do she's engaged with it and it's kind of harrowing stuff and involves a lot of sexy dancing and nudity none of which is really all that sexy it's it's definitely just graphic um but watching an episode some of the supporting actors every once in a while are doing kind of funny things but mostly there's a lot of caricatured supporting performances. I don't have a clue what Hank Azaria is doing as a as a very, very step stereotypical kind of Israeli, but not really effectively. Mostly just a caricature as as a manager of the pop star. I would I would go so far as to say that there's a lot of stuff with the Jewishness of several of the characters. Eli Roth plays another that is pretty right on the edge of of anti-semitic the question of whether you want to think that that's a commentary by sam levinson and company or whether it's just playing into stereotypes i can let people decide if if they feel that it's progressive or whatever i i kept scratching my head and going yeah that's a little bit gross and i i get it that character is supposed to be stereotypically jewish and you know that's it's kind of right on the edge of kanye west territory about who runs the industry uh 
Yeah, and, and then just a lot of people who feel overqualified for this. Jane Adams has several lines of dialogue, but I, I felt truly kind of embarrassed for her. I she is too good an actress to be asked to do such garbage. Uh, yeah, th- this is just not a not a good show, and it's exactly the reason why everybody does pilots. HBO is in the pilot business. I, There should have been the opportunity to say at multiple points, we don't have this show yet. Maybe we shouldn't make the show until we know what the show is. It sounds like they had that. They redid almost all of it under different auspices. And this is what the result was. Uh, Yeah, it's it's. And they had to contend with the weekend's touring schedule. Yeah, I, I don't understand it. And, and also watching this, I, I don't know how much it actually cost. I assume the answer is a ridiculous amount, but there's no indication of, of <laughs> on screen of why this would be an expensive TV show. It's the first episode is mostly set in a badly art designed nightclub and in a very, very fancy uh, Hollywood Hills type home. Um, but it doesn't look great there's no real opulence to it it's really just a bad show and not really a bad show in an entertaining way like i think honestly that euphoria is frequently a bad show but even when it is a bad show i can always find things to latch on to in euphoria even if i'm like oh god this is exploitative and and leering and prurient which i often think that euphoria is i can always find something to latch onto. It's it's gorgeously shot. Cinematography on that show, beautiful. Almost every performance on that show, excellent. It also has significantly more and more effective humor than The Idol. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. But again, it, critics were not sent screeners. People at Cannes saw two episodes. I don't know that I've talked to anyone who thought that the second episode was a dramatic improvement. And also... If the second episode were significantly better, if the third episode were significantly better, I believe that HBO would have made sure that critics saw it so as to avoid eviscerating it on the basis of one episode. Um, But no such gestures have been made. This just feels like a show that really just shouldn't have been made, where someone should have just said, we don't have a show, let's not make this show. And I don't understand why it actually ended up getting made. So... That is that is the idol. Um, and am I going to watch multiple more episodes of the idol? Yes, I probably will. So, and, but I couldn't tell you why. And also, I, I gave it my pretty full attention the first episode. I I was I was latched on. I was trying to find whatever it was that I was supposed to be finding perceptive or clever or whatever about it. Um, I think it will move towards the background viewing or the whatever subsequently. So anyway, um, but also, as I suggested, the other new things aren't especially great either. Uh, the crowded room for anyone who knows, I didn't even realize until I was a good deal into it that it was based on the minds of Billy Milligan, the uh, Daniel Keyes, um 
nonfiction novel, however one wants to to phrase it. And I can't say what that was based on and that or what the premise of it is, because that's part of the <laughs> thing that we're not supposed to reveal, which is so strange. Akiva Goldsman created the show for television. It's been in development for decades as a feature, many different forms. Um, and once you see it, you understand in a kind of general sense why multiple directors would have thought and writers would have thought it was an interesting thing to want to try doing, and certainly why it would have been very interesting for a bunch of young actors to think they wanted to be involved with. You can see why they'd want to do it. But explaining why Akiva Goldman was drawn to do it would require saying what the premise of the show was, and critics aren't allowed to discuss that, which is so strange. Like, he talks about how uh, he wants, he, he was driven to make the show because he wanted to do an empathetic portrait of, and here I'm putting uh, redacted, because I can't tell you, because the first thing it says in the Do Not Reveals is, don't reveal it's about that. So he wanted it to be an empathetic portrait of this, but no critic can discuss the thing it's supposed to be an empathetic portrait of. Also, it's really not. It, it's it's just a badly, badly conceived version of a potentially great story. There is no way that this should have been a 10-episode uh, series. This Just none. This should have been... It should have been a movie. It could have been a four or six hour limited series at 10 episodes. And with the quote unquote twist not being revealed until more than halfway through, it's just a structural mess. And having gotten to the twist in the series, it is impossible to understand what the rest of the series is even supposed to be because the twist becomes all that anything is. And it's not a surprising twist for a variety of reasons, not the least of it being that it's based on an established book that's based on a a historical personage who in some period of time was reasonably public and significant. It's just not going to fool a lot of people. And then once people get to the twist and it's revealed what they've been fooled on, there's no next step. There's no thing that says, okay, now that I know this twist, I'm interested in this story for this reason. There's none of that. And it's it's another show with a very, very good cast. You have Tom Holland as as the main character who's uh, who's arrested in the first scene for reasons. And over the course of a number of episodes, he's being interrogated by a character played by Amanda Seyfried. Uh, and it's hard for me to exactly tell you what that character is, because her profession is also embargoed. Makes no sense whatsoever. You have Emmy Rossum playing the Tom Holland character's mother, and it, it's kind of a confusing thing because she's mostly playing the character in flashbacks. So you go, okay, I guess that makes some sense, but then you still have Tom Holland playing the character. So there's a lot of stuff where it's like, okay, well, there, there's about an eight year difference between them, not a very big difference. Uh, and, and some of the acting is, is, good and and entertaining. I think Tom Holland's pretty solid. I think Emmy Rossum doesn't have a lot to do, but when she does, I think she's very good. Amanda Seyfried is uh, 
when you eventually get to the episode that's based around what the character is and does and who the character is as a person, I think she's great. I think you're going to watch four or five episodes going, why did they need an actor of that uh of that profile to play the role, but eventually you'll find the answer if you still care. Uh, yeah, my, my biggest takeaway here really and truly is that there's a, a four to six hour version of this that would be really good. And that 10 hours is by no stretch of the imagination, how long this should have been. This, this is just not what the story was designed to carry and the decision to treat the entire premise of the show as a spoiler, which is, also, the, the show itself does that. Like, I understand why Apple TV thinks that for the show they released, people shouldn't spoil what the conceit of the show is. I just don't understand why that was the conceit of the show. It treats a thing that Akiva Goldsman wanted to treat at, seriously as a cheap twist, as opposed to the empathetic thing that he wanted to treat it as. And yeah, it's it's just a bad structural idea my my feeling is that the thing that the show turns out to be it should have revealed itself to be that at the end of one episode and then it could have actually been an empathetic portrayal as opposed to just a a slick and somewhat glib portrayal of a serious thing so not a not a huge fan unfortunately of of the crowded room and also <laughs> it's, this is just one of those weeks not a huge fan of based on true story either um, though at least based on true story is only eight episodes. They're only a half hour. They do move fairly quickly. Sometimes they're funny. And I think that for the first four episodes of it, I found it amusing enough. So the, the basic premise of that so far as I'm able to reveal is that Kaylee Cuoco and Chris Messina play a West side, Los Angeles couple. They're expecting their first child, but their marriage is a little bit strained because their lives are unfulfilled. They have friends who are living the Hollywood dream and they are not, uh, but they see an opportunity when uh, true crime obsessed character played by Kelly Cuoco discovers that somebody they know, somebody in their sphere is very possibly the serial killer known as the West side Ripper she is a true crime aficionado and decides to basically propose doing a podcast, true crime podcast, where they interview the serial killer. Um, so lots of talk about podcast story, podcast storytelling and stereotyping and lots of talk about the true crime genre. If this sounds an awful lot like Only Murders in the Building, it really kind of is. The tone is not identical, obviously. This is a much more L.A. take on the story. Um, it's It lacks the kind of semi-sophisticated wordplay of Only Murders. Uh, and ultimately, it kind of lacks ideas. For the first four episodes, there's fun to be had. There's there are some entertaining performances. I think that Kaylee Cuoco and Chris Messina are both very good. I think that Tom Bateman, who plays their new plumber, uh, is okay and seems to be having fun. Bunch of supporting people who are are entertaining. And some of the stuff about podcasting is amusing. And then it just probably around mid-season, the characters go to CrimeCon in Las Vegas. And some wild things happen at CrimeCon. But then once it gets back 
every episode is doing the exact same thing. It becomes a, a very, very redundant structure of, ooh, is this person going to find out? What are we going to do with this person? What's going to happen? Is the West Side Ripper going to kill them? Okay, if they do kill them, how are we going to dispose of the body, etc.? It just becomes really, really slick and repetitive. And also, allegedly, some parts of this story actually are based on true stories relating to Craig Rosenberg, the series's creators, creator, you would have no idea based on watching this, that any part of this story was real. No part of it feels as if it's a thing that was based on true story. So whatever was real has been so thoroughly co-opted by comedic and dramatic conventions that it's unrecognizable as a true experience for anybody, much less one related to the writer who wrote the story. Uh, Again, I like the stars. This is a thing that Kaylee Cuoco, it's it's very similar to her performance in The Flight Attendant, which I think is a great performance. And I think this is a very good performance. It's just not a very well-written character, but none of them are. But at eight episodes and half an hour apiece, you can make your way through it quickly. But boy, when it got to the end of eight episodes, I thought it should have been a a close-ended series and nothing about where it suggests things are going for the second season is even the least bit interesting to me. So, oh well. Uh, So yeah, so going back though to other various things premiering, Arnold is a three-hour commercial for Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is not a uh, three-hour commercial that ignores problematic things in Arnold Schwarzenegger's life. It uh, acknowledges his infidelities that led to his divorce. It acknowledges the LA times reporting when he was running for governor of over a half dozen women accusing him of harassment and groping and other things. It just acknowledges all of those things within a very hagiographic uh, celebration of Arnold Schwarzenegger as an, a particularly American icon. Uh, it takes kind of a three act structure on his life. So Ultimately, his time as a bodybuilder is given almost identical screen time to his time as a movie star, which seems like a a strange choice to me, um, because his time as a bodybuilder has very few people available to talk about it. His time as a movie star has many people available to talk about it, and yet feels incredibly rushed. Uh, Ditto with his time as governor of California. I don't know that I learned anything. I, I, some of the interviews are amusing. It is not as if Arnold Schwarzenegger is not a a game and gregarious storyteller. And since he is basically the steering force of this documentary, he gets to tell his story however he wants to. And there's almost no pushback on anything. Uh, yeah, it's it's simultaneously too long and too short. You know, it, it could have been longer if people had wanted to go into more depth on aspects of Arnold Schwarzenegger's career, or it could have been two hours, one or the other. This isn't right. And then finally, also premiering on the Netflix, is the fourth and final season of Never Have I Ever. Uh, I've watched half of the season so far, and honestly, I've watched only half of it in part because I, I want to drag it out a little. It's not one of my favorite shows on TV, but it's a show I like, and it's a show that I think is a a wonderful piece of casual viewing television. It's it's just a, a fun show to settle in at 22 minutes per episode and laugh a little and like the very, very game cast. Little bit sad that it's it's coming to an end, but, you know, the fact that I got four, uh, four seasons in today's Netflix environment borders on miraculous. Uh, you know, how many shows at this point on Netflix are actually getting 
four seasons and are actually getting to resolve kind of on their own terms. Not many. Very, very few. I know this is one that you're a big fan of. Have you watched the fourth season yet or have you not gotten to, to it yet? Lots of lots of I've TV. Watched the fir- I've watched the first couple episodes of, of the final season and, and it, it, it's a, it just it's, it's comfort food. It's, it's a, yeah. a great show to watch when you're just like men- mentally when I need to not think about the strike or what the Dodgers are doing about pride and that nonsense. It's a perfect show to just get lost in that completely. World. And I, and similarly, you know, the, the Mindy Kaling produced, uh, uh, sex lives of college girls. I think they're very, very similar in terms of Love their, that too. in terms of their tone and in terms of just having these shows on as, as I'm tired of giving a hundred percent attention to things I would like to watch at 75%. Uh, I think, I think these are really, really entertaining shows. I think that the, uh, young cast on Never Have I Ever remains very, very good. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's not a show that I will ever list among my favorite shows on TV. And yet it's a show that when it's coming back, I go, yay, I can happily watch 10 more episodes of, of this show. And so, and, and I like shows like that. I, I need a handful more shows like that, that I don't need to treat in terms of a, what are its Emmy hopes? Who is going to be a sleeper contender for supporting actor nominations? No, I sometimes just like watching a show where I can, I can chuckle a little bit with the characters and find uh, some emotional resonance in their world. And I think never have I ever continues to be a show that does that quite. I just well. got into ghosts for exactly the same reasons, Dan. Uh, I, I, I do have, I do have the entire second half of the second season of ghosts. So maybe, maybe that's where I will transition to definitely another show where I can enjoy the ensemble and uh, find some things amusing in each episode without needing to break my brain, trying to find it's, it's bigger value. I can, I can just enjoy what it is. So never have I ever, honestly, never have I ever is my favorite of the things premiering this week because to rehash the idol on HBO is uh, just pretty much, unfortunately, straight up garbage. Uh, it is, it is definitely exploitative and definitely really just there, there was the gap on Sunday night viewing between succession and the idol in terms of acting, in terms of writing, in terms of directing, it, it is just falling off a cliff and it's too bad because you know, <laughs> I, I like to enjoy my HBO programming. Uh, crowded room. You'll probably figure out the twist and you'll definitely be wondering why you want to keep watching it. But there are good actors in it and that might keep you engaged. Some humor in uh, Only Murders in Mar Vista or rather based on a true story. Uh, always fun to watch Kaylee Cuoco and Chris Messina. But second half of the season, definitely not as good as the first and Arnold is a commercial for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do you need such a commercial? I cannot say for sure. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you as always for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood reporters TV podcast. Next week, we have something that we're not ready to tease specifically yet, but if it comes together, it should be something that's hella fun. So we're looking forward hella to that. Fun. Uh, we, yeah, again, we don't want to, we don't want to spoil it. It is a definite deviation from format and thus we don't want to say too much, but if it comes together, it's going to be a really cool thing for next week. Yeah. And have a lot 
of voices. I'll say that. That's your clue. Quite the only clue. Quite literally. Um, So yes, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Uh, Let us know what's working what isn't working, et cetera, et cetera. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>